Chapter Three, Part One of Campfire Tales of Jackson Hole, by G. Brian Harry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Doan Expedition of eighteen seventy six to seventy seven, Fort Ellis, Montana Territory, to Fort Hall, Idaho, by Merlin K. Potts, former Chief Park Naturalist. Telegram, Saint Paul, Minnesota, October four, eighteen seventy six to the commanding officer fort ellis montana territory under authority received from the lieutenant-general first lieutenant g c doan second cavalry is ordered to make exploration of snake river from yellowstone lake to colorado river he will be furnished a mounted detail of one non-commissioned officer and five men of the second cavalry the pack animals sixty days of rations for the party and the necessary camp equipage you will cause also a small boat to be built by the quartermaster for lieutenant doan's use under his directions lieutenant doan will send back his detachment from mouth of snake river to fort ellis and will himself return to his post via san francisco california remaining at the latter place long enough to make his report by command of general terry signed edward smith captain of a d c headquarters fort ellis montana territory october seventh eighteen seventy six special orders number one forty two extract item two first lieutenant g c doan second cavalry is hereby relieved from duty at his post and will comply with telegraphic instructions from headquarters department of dakota st paul minnesota date october fourth eighteen seventy six item three the following named enlisted men are hereby detailed for detached service mounted and will report to first lieutenant g c doan second cavalry for duty sergeant fred server company g second cavalry private f r applegate company g second cavalry private daniel starr company f second cavalry private william white company f second cavalry private john b warren company h second cavalry private c r davis company l second cavalry they will be furnished with sixty days rations item four the post quartermaster is hereby directed to furnish first lieutenant g c known second cavalry with pack animals camp equipage and boat necessary to enable him to carry out the telegraphic instructions from headquarters department of dakota st paul minnesota dated october fourth eighteen seventy six by order of captain ball signed chas b schofield second lieutenant second cavalry post adjutant the foregoing orders initiated one of the most unusual and bizarre expeditions in the history of the west unusual because of the lack of judgment shown in selecting late fall and winter for the journey bizarre in the impracticability in fact the impossibility of execution of the orders lieutenant gustavus c doan selected to lead the party was without question as capable a leader as could have been chosen lieutenant doan had been detailed with five cavalrymen to accompany general henry d washburn 
Nathaniel Pitt Langford and their party of 1870 on the memorable exploration of the area destined to become Yellowstone National Park two years later. His record of service with that expedition was exemplary. He had a first-hand knowledge of much of the country to be traversed, at least over the early stages of the route. He lacked neither courage nor aptitude, and he possessed the ability to observe, describe, and record in detail the experiences and observations of the expedition. Hiram Martin Chittenden, in the biographical notes appended to his book, The Yellowstone National Park, has given us, very briefly, an impression of the men and his background. Lieutenant Doan was born in Illinois, May 29, 1840, and died in Bozeman, Montana, May 5, 1892. At the age of five, he went with his parents in the wake of an ox team to Oregon. In 1849, his family went to California at the outbreak of the gold excitement. He remained there ten years, in the meanwhile working his way through school. In 1862, he entered the Union service, went east with the California Hundred, and then joined a Massachusetts Cavalry Regiment. He was mustered out in 1865 as a first lieutenant. He joined the Carpetbaggers and is said to have become the mayor of Yazoo City, Mississippi. He was appointed second lieutenant in the regular army in 1868 and continued in the service until his death, attaining the rank of captain. Don's whole career was actuated by a love of adventure. He had at various times planned a voyage to the polar regions or an expedition of discovery into Africa, but fate assigned him a middle ground, and he became prominently connected with the discovery of the upper Yellowstone country. His part in the expedition of 1870 is second to none. He made the first official report to the War Department upon the wonders of the Yellowstone, and his fine descriptions have never been surpassed by any subsequent writer. Although suffering intense physical torture from a felon on his thumb, finally lanced by Mr. Langford, during the greater portion of the trip, it did not extinguish in him the truly poetic ardor with which those strange phenomena seemed to have inspired him. Dr. Hayden, Ferdinand V. Hayden, United States Geologist, Department of the Interior, 1871, says of this report, I venture to state as my opinion that for graphic description and thrilling interest it has not been surpassed by any official report made to our government since the times of Lewis and Clark. Doan's record, unpublished of his heroic attempt to lead his party through the wilderness of the Yellowstone, southward through Jackson Hole, and down the mad river to the columbia is no less graphic in its vividness no less thrilling in its expression of the hazards and the wild beauty of the land it is marked by his absolute determination no matter what the odds to carry out his orders the lieutenant as his journal records had previous notice that the expedition was to be ordered and partial preparation had been made before the orders were received at fort ellis near the present city of Bozeman, Montana. Ration boxes were prepared, and a boat was built, possibly the first such prefabricated craft ever constructed. It was a double-ender, 22 feet long, 46 inches in the beam, 26 inches deep, and curved strongly fore and aft. 
It was built entirely of inch plank and put together with screws, then taken apart again, and the lumber lashed in two equal bundles, like the side bars of a litter, the whole forming an easy load for two pack mules. For shelter, the party carried an Indian lodge, constructed of army wagon covers cut to the proper pattern and with a diameter of fourteen feet. The shelter weighed but thirty pounds and sheltered the entire party. On the evening of October 10th, all preparations were complete for an expedition never attempted before in the winter time and never accomplished since. The enlisted force was of picked men selected for special qualifications. In addition to those enumerated in the previous order, Private Morgan Osborne, G Troop, the carpenter who built the little boat, and John L. Ward, of L Troop, a teamster and packer, were taken along to bring back extra mules and the wagon from whatever point might be selected en route. On October 11th, the expedition moved out from Fort Ellis and southeastward toward the valley of the Yellowstone, reached that stream the following day, and thence up that wild and winding river toward the Mammoth Springs. The wagon-bearing supplies was drawn by eight mules. Two others carried the boat material. Each man was mounted except the teamster. An extra horse was led for him. All went smoothly until the third day, when, not far from the northern boundary of the park, the wagon came to grief. An unruly wheeler failed to pull at the right time, and the heavy vehicle cramped and went over, crushing a hind wheel and reducing the body to something resembling kindling wood. As a result of this not unexpected mishap, the wagon was abandoned, the load, comparatively undamaged, was made into packs, and after a two-day delay to rest the animals and arrange the loads, the party proceeded. In his entry of October 16, Doan enumerates the equipment carried by his party. Our outfit was an Arctic one. Omitting the stereotyped religious literature, we had buffalo coats and moccasins, rubber boots and overshoes, heavy underclothing, and plenty of robes and blankets. The detachment carried carbines only. Pistols are worthless in the mountains. In fact, they are worthless anywhere in the field. I carried a 12-pound Sharps buffalo rifle, with globe sight on the stock, and chambered for long-range cartridges. Our provisions did not include pemmican, built tongue, lime juice, or any other of the orthodox food preparations, but consisted of plain American rations with some added commissaries and an abundance of tea and tobacco. Matches were packed on every animal, and each individual carried several boxes constantly. Each man had a good hunting knife, not the cross-tilted and murderous-looking kind, but a short one, intended for cutting up game. Our cooking apparatus included two fry-pans, two Dutch ovens, four camp kettles, and some mess-pans. We had plenty of axes, and each man carried a hatchet on his saddle. To put together the boat required only a saw, a screwdriver, and a gimlet, and we had a sack of oakum with which to caulk the seams. Before starting, there had been no solemnities, but each man's personal outfit was complete, arranged with a view to meet all possible contingencies without delay. I had duplicate notebooks, 
one of which Sergeant Server carried, and from his, the only one left, I take my notes for this report. Of instruments, I carried a prismatic compass, aneroid barometer, max and min thermometers, and a long tape measure. None of these were provided by a generous government, but all were purchased by myself, as usual in such cases. On October 17, the party lost the first of the pack animals. The morning air broke chilly and the air filled with frosty mist. One mule, a queer slab-sided one, was down, paralyzed across the kidneys. Here was an emergency. It was unable to stand alone when lifted to its feet, and would starve to death in a few days if we left it. But one remedy was available, and that was a severe one. We heated kettles of water, and scalded the animal along the spine. The first kettleful brought him to his feet, without further assistance, and a few cups full from a second restored his nerves enough so that he kicked vigorously at his kind physicians, and refused further treatment. He was fearfully scalded, but restored, and returned to Fort Ellis next spring of his own volition, got entirely well, and survived all of his comrades of the pack train several years. A heavy snowstorm began on the night of October 19. The party laid over on October 20, and on October 21 made an early start for Mount Washburn, capping on its upper slopes that night, to the great relief of the lieutenant. This was the highest point to be crossed, 9,200 feet, and I was terribly uneasy lest we should find it, the gap, blocked with snow as a depth of thirty feet is not unusual in February. Beyond, and at our feet now, lay the great basin of the Yellowstone, with its dark forests, its open spaces all wintry white, and its steam columns shooting upward in every direction. It was like coming suddenly upon the confines of the unknown. So differently did the snow landscape appear in the summertime. To us, it was an enchanted land, the portals of which had just been safely passed, and we struck the downward trail full of enthusiasm, reached the open basin of Crystal Spring Creek, the lowest point in the Great Basin, and camped in snow two feet in depth, distance 18 miles, elevation 7,250 feet. On October 23rd, the party reached Yellowstone Lake, camping at its outlet, and route that day, Doan encountered a tremendous elk herd. Taking light loads and leaving a man with the balance of the plunder to keep off the bearers as these animals are affected with a childish curiosity in relation to government rations, I started in advance of the party on the lake trail and was riding along slowly with my eyes shaded when my horse shied violently with a snort and stood trembling. I jerked away the shade and saw that I had ridden close up to a herd of at least two thousand elk. They had been lying in the snow, and had all sprung up together, frightening my horse. In a minute the great herd was out of sight, crashing through the forest, the old bulls screaming their strange foghorn cry. It was a magnificent sight, as the bulls were in full growth of horns, and the calves all large enough to run freely with the herd. No game animal has the majestic presence of a bull elk when he is not frightened, and in herds they maneuver with a wonderful precision 
breaking by file at a long swinging trot and coming back into line right left or front to gaze at some object of apprehension with the celerity and absence of confusion truly remarkable in chasing them on horseback the first effect is to break them into a gallop when they move more slowly and soon tire in deep snow when the herd breaks the trail for the horse to follow in there is no difficulty in catching them i remember a chase in the yellowstone valley one winter day when two of us killed seventeen elk in less than an hour two large wagon loads of meat on this occasion i did not shoot as we had a long march to make and it would have caused delay but watched them till lost to view and rode on this sign of abundant game was exceedingly favorable and gave a confidence which nothing else could have inspired for the following two days the expedition remained in camp on the shore of the lake preparing the outfit for double transportation by land and water the pack animals and part of the men to follow the shoreline the others to take the boat across the lake the little boat was assembled the seams pitched and the teeps erected for the first time bow shelters having been used previously on october twenty fourth the men worked until late in the night making equipment ready and retired to rest feeling all was well so far during the night the stock stampeded and ran in close to the campfire a strange threatening voice was heard in the dense forest nearby a noise i had never heard before a loud roaring was repeated applegate gathered his belt and carbine and i the big rifle and while the others quieted the stock we moved out in the direction from which the sound came it receded as we advanced and shortly with a continued crashing the animal retreated out of hearing into the timber we soon came upon its trail and i sent back for a lantern it was an old bull moose it had pawed up quite a space and barked a couple of young trees with its horns thus producing the crashing sound we had first noticed in accounts of moose hunting read previously i had never seen it stated that a moose gave any call whatever these in the park have voices unquestionably and use them with the utmost freedom toward morning we were again roused by a flock of swans circling over us with their wild and splendid notes harmonized to a glorious symphony in the morning i shot and wounded a large wolverine but did not stop him and star while prowling along the river bank below camp shot a goose and found a small plank canoe in which he proceeded to paddle out into the lake doan's description of the moonlight night which followed is a classic example of his ability to portray in words a picture of the wilderness he loves so well that evening the moon was in full and rising high above the lake and mountain its soft light bathed the splendid landscape in floods of silver the mighty ranges of the great divide were sharply outlined in cold gleaming white below the ragged summits dark green forest masses filled the spaces to the margin of the water at intervals steam jets played along the shore and the deep valley of the upper yellowstone 
reached the farthest limit of vision in the foreground. On the left front appeared a group of ghastly hills of chalky luster by the banks of Pelican Creek, and beyond there a winding valley, constantly rising as it receded with glittering channels, from thermal springs threading its long green slopes. On the right front loomed up the yellow flank of Mount Sheridan, seemingly ready to burst forth with sulphurous flames, and flooding the space between lay the glorious lake with its rippling moonlit waters, its long sand beaches, and deeply indented shores, its rocky islands of splendid coloring, its cliffs and inlets, and its still lagoons, a picture indescribable, unequaled, and alone. From the distant marshes on the newborn Yellowstone came the sound of fluttering cries of restless waterfowl. From the echoing forest beyond, the mountain lions screaming and moaning at intervals while we put the finishing touches on our little vessel. Star and Applegate, both expert boatmen, paddled the little canoe far out on the sparkling waters and sang Crow Indian war songs as the work went on the horses and mules having stuffed themselves with luxuriant mountain grasses came up and stood meditatively with their noses over the campfires in thorough contentment it was a night and a scene to be remembered a touch of nature vibrating into infinity in this entry also seated by the campfire in a wonderfully expansive mood of the utmost well-being touched by the serene beauty of his surroundings don takes occasion to describe the other members of his party the picked men selected for special qualifications of the men who composed my party sergeant fred server was a philadelphian of good family a wild boy who had settled down to a splendid daring soldier an expert horseman and a good shot a man of perfect physique and iron constitution. Private F. R. Applegate was a small, wiry Marylander, used to hard knocks, thoroughly at home anywhere, full of expedience, and know all about managing small watercraft. Private Daniel Starr was a man of powerful voice and massive form, had served on a war vessel, could turn his hand to any work, a man of infinite jest and humor, and reckless beyond all conception. He was already a celebrity in Montana, on account of his uproarious hilarity, daring, and wild adventures. He ran the first boat on the Yellowstone Lake in 1871, had piloted several parties through the park, and was always a volunteer in anything which promised a new field and a basis of new stories and the most ludicrous and most exaggerated character. Private William White was a quiet, solemn young man, useful in any service, full of romantic ideas, sober, reserved, a man of fearless disposition. Private John B. Warren was an Englishman, very set in ideas, an older man than the others, a man of intelligence, a most indefatigable fisherman and an all-around utility man. Private C. B. Davis was a born cook. 
He lived for his stomach alone, and knew how to prepare food for its pacification. He saw no value in anything that was not edible, talked, thought, and dreamed of good things to eat, but came out strongly over a campfire. With a dishcloth in one hand, and something dead in the other, he smiled beamingly into the yawning interior of an open Dutch oven, and inhaled with unspeakable delight the fragrant aroma of a steaming coffee-pot. The above formed the regular detail of the expedition. The others, Private Morgan Osborne, a carpenter, was a careful, sober man, not used to the mountains, faithful and honest, and therefore useful. Private John L. Ward was a hardy, vigorous man, good on a trail, in a boat, or on a wheel mule, a packer and a woodsman. They were all enthusiastic on the subject of the present expedition, and were reliable, intrepid men. The little vessel was launched on October 26. No champagne christening this, but she rode on an even keel, and rose in fine style to the waves. Doan, Star, Applegate, and Ward voyaged out to Stevenson's Island and returned. The next day the boat was carefully loaded. It carried everything except the saddle outfits on the animals. A broken-down mule was left behind and with a mule harnessed to a tow-line, and one man to steer the boat offshore, she was so pulled along the beach for some twelve miles. At a rocky promontory, the tow-line was taken in, and two men rowed the craft around the point. Coming close to shore, a wave struck the little vessel under the lee quarter, and swamped her instantly. The water was shallow, and everything was saved, but camp was made at once. Fifteen miles from the point of launching. The rest of the afternoon and half the night was spent in keeping fires going to dry out the baggage. The following morning it was discovered that waves had knocked loose some of the caulking on the bottom of the boat. It was repaired with the remaining oakum and pitch. At this point, the lieutenant was very uneasy on account of the snow in sight on the continental divide in front of us so decided to leave Star, Applegate, and Ward to complete repairs to the boat, while he and the others, with all the property, should push on, cross the divide, break its trail, and return with mules and horses to the lake shore to meet the party with the boat. Doan and his group accordingly struck through the forest for several miles on October 28 reached the lake shore again, and followed it to the lower end of the southwest arm, where the foothills come on the shore, skirted around to the east side, past the great group of silicate springs, probably the West Thumb area, and camped at the foot of the Great Divide, at the nearest point opposite Hart Lake. The following morning, the land party remained near camp, in hopes that the men with the boat might come, and spent their time examining the springs. One crater cone still active stands in front of the main group, pouring a stream of boiling water into the cold surrounding lake. It is here that anglers catch the trout and cook them on the hook. The boat failing to appear, Doan and his men started up the slope to the divide in a heavy and blinding snowstorm through a tangled forest. 
the weather turned very cold travel was difficult up the slopes in snow some two feet in depth on top of the ridge it was necessary to stop and build a fire the animals and men were loaded with snow and ice the party reached a hot spring basin a mile from hart lake long after dark built a great fire of seasoned pines and spent most of the night drying out doan was not at all satisfied with the route he had followed and on the following day in clear weather the party worked its way back to yellowstone lake by a route which proved to be much shorter the boat not having arrived a watch fire to serve as a beacon was built on a bluff on the lake shore doan's entry in the journal for october thirty indicates his concern for the fate of the voyagers star applegate and ward that was their third day and i was consumed with anxiety a cold wintry blast was driving down the lake in a direction at right angles to their course the waves were running high and on the opposite shore we could see the surf flying against the rocks covering them with glittering masses of ice it was growing colder every minute and the night was intensely dark a driving sleet began to fall this was dangerous as it adhered to whatever it touched our apprehensions were almost beyond endurance i knew those men would start that night no matter what perils might be encountered they had twenty miles to come in an eggshell boat which had never been tried in rough water nothing could live in that icy flood half an hour if cast overboard the wind and cold were both increasing constantly hour after hour passed i followed the beach a couple of miles but finding no traces returned the sergeant went in the other direction with like results we were standing together on the shore despairing when suddenly there was borne to us on the driving blast the sound of boisterous and double-jointed profanity the voice was stars and we knew that the daring invincible men were safe and successful we ran to meet them and help them beach and unload the few articles that the boat contained the oars were coated an inch thick and the boat was half full of solid ice when the three men came in front of the campfire they were a sight to behold their hair and beards were frozen to their caps and overcoats and they were sheeted with glistening ice from head to foot the boat had nearly filled three times but applegate who steered threw her bow to the waves and held her there while the others bailed her out they found that she would not bear the cross sea so they kept her head to the wind and forced her to make leeway by pulling stronger on the opposite side and working the steering oar to correspond thus they battled with the storm hour after hour until they had drifted twenty miles and reached the other shore we changed clothing with them and after giving them a warm supper made them go to bed at once the rest of the night we put in drying their clothes as they soundly slept on october thirty one the boat was cleared of ice by chopping it out with axes hot ashes were thrown in to dry her out inside and slipper poles were cut and fitted under her to serve as runners dragging side poles were also attached to fend her off standing trees in passing 
two mules were hitched to the boat in tandem to drag her and although progress was slow because the boat frequently became wedged between trees and the deep snow made travel very difficult for the mules the divide was crossed and at nine o'clock at night we left her on the pacific slope of the rocky mountains and went on with the tired stock into camp on november second the extra men ward and osborne with their horses and the three poorest mules were started back to fort ellis since they were no longer needed they were to pick up the mules and property left at different points on the way and after an arduous trip of several days they reached fort ellis safely the lieutenant and his reduced party now had seven horses and four pack mules in camp at hart lake it was necessary to make extensive repairs to the boat the cold had shrunken the boards and opened all the seams she was finally in order and launched on hart lake on november five during this layover the party feasted on baked porcupine which resembled in taste young pork with a faint flavor of pine the party moved across and around hart lake on november six the boat loaded with all the equipment the horses and mules taken along the western shore it was necessary to drag the boat across the frozen lower section of the lake for some three miles to the outlet there the volume of the stream was so small it would not float the craft even unloaded over the rocks of the stream bed for the next several days the little vessel the men and the animals took a beating from the stream the weather and the terribly hard going End of chapter 3, part 1